Hello, and welcome back to Idiot's Alphabet Soup. Ooh, exciting. So why, exciting. Why is this so um, This is so exciting because we have the author of the book we're talking about today with us, and it's not someone who's related to us. <laughs> um, yeah, so today we have Catherine Howe with us, who wrote the book Vanderbilt, which we're going to be talking about. Um, yeah, so hi, I'm so <laughs> happy to be here. We're so happy to be to have you here. Oh my word. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Catherine, do you want to explain how this came about that we sure. um, <laughs> ended up uh, having I, you I, on the podcast? I, I was like, I eaves, I, I overheard you guys talking about Vanderbilt on uh, on Instagram. <laughs> you're like, you're like. We're talking about Vanderbilt at work while we're bored. And uh, of course, being like most people, I also look at Instagram and I'm at work and I'm bored. And I was like, hey, I hear you talking about me. What are you saying? <laughs> and uh, I don't actually remember um, whose idea it was. Maybe it was my idea. Maybe I just blithely was like, have me on your podcast. That sounds like something I would do. There was one time sort of early, early in podcasting. This was years and years ago. Um, I came across some like, like podcast where someone was just they did a whole long thing talking about how much they hated my first novel they had like skits and it was it was like supposed to be funny and had a whole like total like hater fest on my very first novel and I was like well that that's that's such a bummer that's really disappointing blah blah you know I, I wish they liked it oh well and then they did a second episode also about my first novel and I was like okay obviously y'all are in love with me and so I wrote to them <laughs> and so uh, this is not my first oh, time okay. and then we had a really nice visit um about my second novel and everything was really fine um it was it was rather sweet so I'm not it, this is not the first time I've <laughs> eavesdropped on somebody talking about me on a podcast and just been like hey I'm gonna insert myself in your conversation <laughs> oh, I love that so much well this is a certified not a hate podcast <laughs> yes it's okay either way I'm ready bring it Maybe Maybe we talk can... about why we invited Catherine on yes, podcast. Yes, actually, that's a great also, idea. Also, this is kind of going to be confusing because we both have the same name, but we're going to make yeah. do. Um, refer- yeah. Should we refer to each other by our last names, like we're like we're English boys at boarding school in 1912? I like uh, that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll call you How, and you can call me Murph. <laughs> okay, <laughs> perfect. I almost forgot. I was going to call you Sunyel, and then I was like, oh wait, she is married now. Yeah. It just got wifed. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. But anyway, so, like, every time we talk about a book, me and Jenny have this bit where um, we, like, write to the author of the book that we read and ask, like, oh, do you want to go on our podcast? Mm-hmm. And, like, the previous authors were, like, a little iffy. Um, for example, we read Project Hail Mary by... Um, Andy Weir and uh-huh. we like emailed him and we got like this generic email back and it's kind of like the bit like ooh watch us get rejected again oh. <laughs> except they for the probably, time it was they probably like, didn't have three books coming out in the next six months like I do <laughs> <laughs> I think the only uh, time we didn't get rejected was when it was my mom <laughs> it's possible I'm just nicer than other authors could be very <laughs> potentially Yes, um, I, I I feel I feel you though. There are, there are some authors that I approach um, that I've approached several times for blurbs. As you can imagine, asking for blurbs is this incredibly stressful and fraught and emotionally complex thing. And so there's some authors who who have shot me down so many times that I now ask them just kind of to troll them. <laughs> so I understand how you feel, Murph. Oh my gosh! Oh, I can't imagine how nerve wracking that would be. Like I hate, oh, pitch. I hate cold emailing people. Oh, it's <laughs> I awful! Can't, Everything just, about it is terrible, and you have to, you have to be so just like. I all I dream of, honestly, is if I ever win a big literary award, then I can stop being blurbed, and that that's like that would be like the <laughs> best thing ever because like my I'm I'm good friends with a with a woman Julia Glass who won the National Book Award. And her most recent novel was Vigil Harbor, which is really great. If you all are looking for another book, you should check it out. She's a a total genius. But the the thing I most envy about her is not having won the National Book Award, not going to the party and being feted and dressed up. It's that she doesn't have to ask for blurbs anymore. (laughs) It's like such freedom. I love it. 
Yeah, we can't imagine because when we were trying to ask you to come on the podcast, I was like, no, you ask it. No, you ask it. <laughs> like freaking out and like, okay, here's what I've typed up. Does this sound good? Should I send it? Aww. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we're so excited to have you here. Thank Truly. you. Truly. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> um. Okay, should we introduce ourselves just so we can all get an idea of what the other one's about? Okay. Cool. Okay. I'll start. Yeah, my name is Jenny Smucker. I'm a, I'm a grad student at Virginia Tech right now uh, studying math. And uh, I started a podcast with my best friend. And we're both idiots. So it's called Idiots Alphabet Soup. <laughs> um, yeah, in general, I feel like I read kind of all over the place but tend to steer towards more fiction just because i like things that don't take too much brain power if i can help it um why do you assume fiction doesn't take brain power jenny i mean it does but like Dude. i don't know it's easier for me to absorb than like oh uh, well Catherine's really into philosophy and like i tried i try reading philosophy well, i try reading philosophy adjacent books sometimes yeah. and it's okay, always like sophie's oh, world <laughs> I, I'm also reading The Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis, and I got, like, 20 pages in, and it's rough. Yeah, if you think that's bad, try reading A Thousand Plateaus. It'll ruin your whole day. Catherine's <laughs> like, I'm going to write that one down and read that yeah. one. <laughs> Murphy. Catherine Murphy. Yes. Yeah. Oh, um, but yeah, that's what I'm about. What about you, Murph? That sounds so odd. Uh, well, okay, I'm Catherine, and I met Jenny in grad school, um, but I decided to dip after my master's because I was sick and tired of being broke and poor. Um, <laughs> and I'm a data scientist in DC, and the books I kind of read, they're a little varied. I tend to like just go to the secondhand bookstore and like pick out like what's interesting. So I'm I'm like definitely not aware of like any best-selling books just because like I'm like oh that that sounds interesting like a biography of the elephant man that's great I'll, I'll read that kind of thing um I tend towards nonfiction and not so much fiction but I'm trying to change that oh. Jenny's trying to change me <laughs> perhaps I can bring you over to the to the side of things that never really happened <laughs> yes Oh, that, that, that pirate novel is going to change your mind for sure. Oh, the pirate novel is going to change your mind for sure. Um, and I'm I'm Catherine Howe. I'm also a grad school refugee. <laughs> and I'm a writer of mostly historical fiction, but also um, increasingly nonfiction. I'm the co-author uh, with Anderson Cooper of the book we're talking about today, which is Vanderbilt, colon, The Rise and Fall of an American Dynasty. And I'll be talking a little bit about our subsequent book, um, Aster, colon, The Rise and Fall of an American Fortune, which is coming out in just a month. And then hopefully I'll be talking a whole lot about pirates because I'm really, really into pirates right now. <laughs> awesome. Um, so do you want to explain how it was that we even decided to talk about Vanderbilt on the podcast? Yes. So I came across the book at, wouldn't you know it, a secondhand bookstore. And I was yes. like, ooh, Vanderbilt. That's cool. And I didn't know that Anderson Cooper was a Vanderbilt. I'm, I'm going to pick this book up. And I read it like a few months ago. And I kept telling Jenny like, oh, you should read it. You should read it. And um, a week ago, I like, was it a week ago? No, like three weeks ago, I sent it over to you, like media mail or whatever. And you read it and we're like, oh, we should talk about it on the podcast. Let's post about it and like see what happens. Yeah. And yeah. Well, okay. The, the part that you're leaving out here is that um, you became like a fun facts machine after this. <laughs> oh, oh, that's what you were going for. Yeah. Because when you first read it, you were like, Jenny, did you know this about the Vanderbilts? Did you know this about the Vanderbilts? <laughs> and then you were like telling your mom the whole story of the Vanderbilts. And she was so like into it. And like, I need to know what happens next. What happens um, next? And then yeah. the thing that got, got me over the edge was you were talking about this, this girl that you knew who was at the Breakers. And you were like, oh, wow, this girl is at the Breakers, which is interesting because it's the ancestral home of the Vanderbilts. And I learned that reading this book. <laughs> <laughs> well, ancestral is a strong word. They only actually lived in it for like 40 years. 
That's true. true. Yeah. And then at that point, Jenny was like, okay, send send the book over. Like, <laughs> I'll read it so you can shut up. <laughs> but it was really good. Quite entertaining. I'm glad you enjoyed it. So how did you end up um, working on this project with Anderson Cooper? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so the way it worked was... Uh, so Anderson ha- has written a couple of books on his own. He wrote a memoir a few years ago of his time as a foreign correspondent. And then he had a book called The Rainbow Comes and Goes, which was a collection of letters between him and his mom. So he's not a stranger to writing books. But the way I, it came about was that um, word sort of went out on the, the street, as it were, that he wanted to be working on a history book, probably about the Vanderbilt family. And writing a history book is kind of its own kind of animal. Um, because of the research that's involved and like figuring out, it's actually a little bit tricky to take, like history doesn't have a plot, right? History just kind of happens. And so turning turning the yeah. archive into a story um, takes a little bit of practice. And so um, he was looking for a co-author who was used to historical research and who um, was also used to writing for a, a popular audience. And since I'm trained as a historian, the grad school program that I'm a refugee from is the American and New England Studies doctoral <laughs> program at Boston University. And so yeah. I, I ended up leaving my graduate program when my first novel, The Physic Book of Deliverance, Stain, came out. Yeah, but baby. I still have all I still have all the history chops. Um, and so I, I put together kind of a presentation of what I thought the book could be interested, how it could look. Because if you're talking about the Vanderbilts, you could go in a number of different directions. And I think the most obvious direction is to go in a business history direction, to talk about railroads, to talk about shipping. And there's actually already a Pulitzer Prize winning book that is called The First Tycoon by T.J. Stiles, which is about the business side of the Vanderbilt fortune. Um, But I am someone who is more of a cultural history person. I'm more interested Mm -hmm. in individual stories and what it felt like to be individual people in these very extraordinary circumstances. And so I spun a few stories and anecdotes at a meeting with Anderson and his, and his, you know, people. And I found out the way that I got the job. I learned later how I got the job and I got the job apparently by telling him about the outfit worn to Alva Vanderbilt's ball by Kate Fearing Strong. The dead cat outfit? The dead cat outfit. She's the one who went, who went as a cat and she's wearing like a, a, a couture dress made all of cat fur and she's got a taxidermied cat on top of her head and she's got her choker with the diamond words on it that's spelled pussy and I'm describing this to to you know all these very serious people and I'm in Anderson's living room and stuff and I'm describing this outfit and they're all just like what (laughs) how is that even a thing and so I found out after the fact that it was my command of Miss Kate Fearing Strong's bizarre Halloween costume in 1883 um, that that landed me the job writing for Vanderbilt. Nice. I love that it was that because that was like one of the things that really stuck out to me was just oh, yeah. how bizarre that Absolutely. was. It's hard, it's hard to really wrap your head around how truly absurd conspicuous consumption became in the Gilded Age until you start looking at details like that. Like I think, I think a lot of us have this kind of abstracted notion of how absurd conspicuous consumption was or how absurd the divide was between wealth and poverty in the 1870s and the 1880s and like up until the progressive era. Um, but until you start to really see it spelled out, it just, it's, it's just kind of hard to really get behind it. Like it, it's, it's hard to make it real. That is, that is crazy. Cause like <laughs> me and Jenny were talking about this, like, um, I don't know, like a few days ago. And we were saying like, Oh, how funny is it that, um, you were like describing a ball that went on with the Vanderbilts and then like the next paragraph is like, yeah. And then like a hundred people died. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I was actually stunned by that. Yeah. What, the, what you're referring to is that the, the end of, so the, we're, we're sort of talking about a chapter where the Vanderbilts, this I actually hadn't known. I had not really un- fully understood that the Vanderbilt family had been during the Gilded Age regarded as nouveau riche as RVs because they'd actually been around since the 17th century. Um, and so I didn't, it wasn't until I started researching for the book that I learned that Alva, like the entry of the Vanderbilts into the super upper echelons of New York society, it was kind of orchestrated by this one woman, Alva Erskine Smith, who was a Confederate um, heiress 
essentially, although her family lost most of their money in the Civil War. Uh, she kind of masterminded their entry into society. And the way she did it was by throwing this completely over-the-top, ludicrous ball that was just famous um, in 1883. And so we have a whole chapter that talks about it. And then I was looking at the coverage that the ball received in the newspapers, because I feel like now there's some society, like, I don't know how you would define society now, but like, you see coverage of the Met Gala or whatever. You see it on, like right. I don't know, BuzzFeed or Lifestyle blogs or what have you. But but it's not like on the front page of the New York Times. No. Yeah. yeah. It's not newsworthy in that way. Well, it, but Alva's Ball was on the front page of the New York Times, which is A, mind-boggling, and B, I was surprised to discover that basically like the same above the fold at the same time, the, the New York Times is reporting on a, a mining disaster that happened. And some of the parallels of like, like figuring out with the delays in reporting and, and so forth, like figuring out exactly what was happening in the mining disaster at the same moment that like dinner is being served in Alva's house. And also looking at some of the money involved because Alva, I for, I'm going to misquote some of the numbers because this is a couple books ago now, but Alva spent something like $11,000 in 1883 money just on the flowers, which is just like an absurd amount of money. And at the same time, all the wives and orphans of, of the men who die in this mining disaster that happened at the exact same time, the whole grant from like the state to help support them is like $1,500. Like it, it's crazy. It was important to me to, especially when talking about a family like the Vanderbilts, you know, there's sometimes a tendency to just be like, look at this splendor, just look at it and marvel at it and relish in it. And I feel like a lot of us, when we look at the past, we have a tendency to identify with people in power. You know, how many people think that in their previous life, they were Cleopatra? No one's like, in my previous life, I was the wife of an enslaved brickmaker in ancient Egypt. And yet that's what we all were. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's important. It was important to me to try to explode some of the romance around the Gilded Age and kind of on, on excavate some of those stories of things that are going on around these these wealthy and powerful families. Um, that's one reason in my fiction, you'll find that I talk a lot about regular people in extraordinary circumstances, and I'm not going to be your fiction writer. I'm not I'm not your writer if you want to read about kings and queens because like I actually don't care. I think that they get enough <laughs> of our attention, and they leave enough of a record of themselves in the archive. And um, I'm a lot more interested in stories that are much harder to excavate. Interesting. Don't you love it when, when people start ranting? <laughs> you, you, you hit my rant button. <laughs> oh, oh, gosh. Man, that makes a lot of sense, though. And it, it yeah. makes me kind of wonder, like, I think sometimes the reasons it's easier to relate to those people. I mean, first of all, we want to see ourselves in positions of power. Of course. But then also. Also, it's more fun. It, it's more better fun. Better clothes, better food, better houses. Yeah. And, like there's so much better documentation of what their lives were like. Exactly. It's, it's easier to tell those stories, which I think yeah. is, yeah, what you're it, feel, it feels more real. I mean, this is one of my rants. I, I don't usually like to cast aspersions on other writers, but like I never got into Hilary Mantel. I tried to read Hilary Mantel because I was like, okay, this is what good historical fiction is. She's winning all these awards. Everyone's talking about it. I'm going to try to read it. But the truth of the matter is like, that feels kind of easy. Like it's easy to read about all of those people. And it doesn't interest me all that much. Um, meanwhile, she was on record saying that, you know, people who write about witches are lame. So <laughs> I guess we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have gotten along. Oh, well, too late. And now she's dead. Yeah. <laughs> Hiller Mantel, look out for this pirate book. I know. That's right. I'm you coming better for be you. watching your back. <laughs> and I'm armed to the teeth. <laughs> so is there anything that you found particularly compelling about like the Vanderbilt dynasty um, that made you want to write about them? Yeah. Um, it was actually a couple things were interesting to me about it. I, you know, I was very intrigued to learn. First of all, you hear Vanderbilt, you think New York, you know, it's, it's a Dutch name. Like I not knowing all that much about it, about them going into it. Um, I think I'd expected that it to be a story of like an old New York, old Dutch, kind of family, which it is sort of, but actually um, each generation, even beginning with the Commodore, 
um, is kind of remade. The Commodore was the, the guy who made all the money. Commodore Vanderbilt, Cornelius Vanderbilt, was born at the end of the 18th century. And he was he made all their money. He first invested in um, shipping. He got a start um, in his dad's ferry business going between Staten Island and Manhattan. And then he quickly pushed his dad out of the business. He was a ruthless businessman, made all his money in steamships, and then moved that pile of money into railroads just at the perfect time. And so he essentially controlled all the rolling stock that came in and out of New York City at exactly the moment that New York City was becoming the economic powerhouse of all of the United States. So it was partly his kind of business acumen that made this phenomenal wealth, but it was also partly a happy accident of timing. Um, but I was interested to discover that in each successive generation of Vanderbilts, they're kind of re overmade by marrying someone from the South, which in a way shouldn't be all that surprising because New York City um, was kind of a copperhead community around the Civil War. Like New York City, on average, had kind of greater sympathies that lay with the Confederacy than, than lay with the Union, despite being a Union state. Um, and there's long, boring reasons I can go into why that would be the case. But it was that was a surprise. So Alva, you know, who I alluded to before, was the one who engineered their social triumph. Um, and she was a Southerner. She was, a, she was an unapologetic Confederate. But Alva actually gets two chapters in the book. And it's because she ends up, she's a really fascinating, contradictory character. And that is because in the first stage of her life, she is this social upstart who's challenging the primacy of Caroline Astor, who ruled over Gilded Age society. In the second stage of her life, she is an ardent, active, militant suffrage activist. And I was trying to wrap my head around, how is that the same person? Like, how do you go from having all your values be focused on having the best party to then, like, only 20 years later, 30, 30 years later, leading a march, a suffrage march up Fifth Avenue past all the houses where you used to go to all these incredible glamorous wealthy parties. And it was actually really fascinating because it is so rare in historical work. Um, I don't know how math research works, but I'm here to tell you in <laughs> history research, this is not how it works. You never get to go to the archive, find the perfect primary source that's like, here's the answer. <laughs> that doesn't happen, you know? So... Alva had made notes for on two different occasions for two separate memoirs. And one of them was the set of, she was never published, but the notes for one of them was um, in the collection at the Huntington Library. And I was working on this book during COVID with an infant and no archive access and no childcare. So I wrote to the Huntington and I was like, would you please scan and send me this thing? So they scanned and sent me, thankfully, um, the notes for Alva's memoir. And amazingly enough, this is that rare, impossible source where Alva's basically like, Catherine, here's exactly what you're looking for. I'm explain. <laughs> you know, it, that never happens. But the upshot is that she, her suffrage activism grew out of her unhappy marriage um, to her unhappy Vanderbilt marriage. She was actually the first um, society woman to divorce her husband. That, was, that just did not occur. Her husband was a widely recognized philanderer. They had nothing in common. Um, and she actually divorced him and weathered the social consequences from it and remarried Oliver Belmont in a you know, beautiful, happy marriage. And she came to like she came to kind of a militancy around women's rights and women's issues and women's self-determination because of her miserable marriage. Um, and it was so. I mean, it, it's also, this is a, a bit uncomfortable. It's her, she, through much of her activism for women, she also has this really weird misogynistic slant. Like she has very little sympathy for women who don't have the same kind of strength of character that she imagines herself to have. Like there's a funny, there's a funny contradiction with Alva where she's able to see the structural constraints around the choices people are able to make, but she's not able to, she doesn't have the empathy for people who are then too bound by those constraints. And I think it's kind of related, honestly, I think it's related to her racism. You know, Alva was an unapologetic, virulent racist. She was a, she was a Confederate. And so, and part of her racism in, in the notes for her memoir 
um, is expressed in terms of kind of contempt for enslaved people, that they would allow themselves to be in this position. Now, of course, we look at the structures in place. and We're like, no one allows themselves to be in that position. This is an impossible situation. Um, so Alva's, Alva's misogyny and her racism are very closely related, and they have to do with her contempt for people she regards as not as strong as she is herself. And so she's a, she's a really complicated person. She's a very complicated person and fascinating for that reason. And which is why, um, you know, we wanted to make the point in the book that like Alva's name is on the national monument for, for women's suffrage. Mm-hmm. And that monument was established under Barack Obama. Like, I think mm-hmm. it's kind of wonderful that, that, you know, history was able to turn in that particular direction. But in answer to your question, what did I find compelling and surprising? Alva was really compelling and surprising to me. I ended up being a lot more interested in the Vanderbilt women on average um, than I was in the Vanderbilt men. Yeah, Isn't it great so having me on a podcast? I just talk and talk and talk and you don't have to do anything. It's so interesting. Um, so I re- yeah, I remember the chapter about Alva because what I found so interesting about it, because I mean, this is also like pointed out there, is how she worked so hard for women's suffrage. And yet, like, she had a lot of women enemies. And, like, she saw a lot of women as, like, in opposition to her. Absolutely. Um, and, she, and, she, yeah. and she also, in her memoir, she spent a lot of, she took great pains defending her decision to force her daughter to marry the Duke of Marlborough, to force her daughter Consuelo. Like, she goes on and on. She doesn't mention the party, by the way, at all. She really? Talks a lot about, yeah, she goes. She so the thing that we all think is important about her now. This is another thing I find fascinating about the way history works. Like, obviously, I look back. I think that that is an important moment. But Alva didn't think that that was an important moment. She thought marrying off Consuelo was an important moment. And she, her perspective was that if people in their twenties, careful, Catherine, I'm about to give you some unwelcome remarks from Alva. <laughs> people in their twenties who marry for love, they're blinded by lust. And they don't know what's good for them. And what they need is to have their parents step in and make a proper arrangement for them. And then they, then their love and respect can grow together. Now, that's not what happened with Consuelo. Consuelo had an unhappy marriage that stayed unhappy, and she ended up being divorced in the 20s. Um, but it was interesting to me to see the intellectual contortions that Alva went to to resolve her obvious contempt for other women into advocacy for women like that's just it's just a weird one it's a weird one yeah yeah do you think why like there's such a big disconnect between like what she did for the suffragette movement and like her like misogyny and racism is connected to the fact that like the values that she was raised on was like so drastically different from like her experience when she got married and like this is her trying to reconcile like you know it's maybe i mean the the unfortunate truth is that in a lot um there's a, a lot of currents of racism within early progressive movements, including suffrage movements. You know, one of the major arguments for, for, for white women's suffrage early on was that um, black men had the vote and white women didn't. Like that, that is an uncomfortable truth that um, feminism kind of, I think, doesn't like to acknowledge or think about too much. But a lot of progressivism has these kinds of sort of scientific racism underpinning them. It's, it's, a, it's a tricky time. It's a tricky time. Yeah. It's very interesting. Okay. So, like, obviously one of the things that happens in this book is that we go from the Vanderbilts having this vast amount of money, like, it's almost unimaginable fortune, to, um, like, not destitute, but they really just don't, like, they're just regular people. And you kind of see that at the beginning where it's, like, these people who are getting kicked out of the home that they grew up in and it's yeah. like this vast, beautiful mansion, but they're just yeah. regular people. Um, so I'm curious, like, what do you think was the downfall of the Vanderbilt fortune? Oh, spending, 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 spending. No one could spend money like a Vanderbilt. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, I mean, the Breakers is such a good example. I'm going to, again, forgive me if I if I fudge the numbers a little bit because I'm a little bit rusty. But like when the Breakers was built, it cost something like $900 million, like something just like absurd, like a simply not credible amount of money and it was so expensive to run and maintain because you needed all the staff and you needed this and you needed that and then eventually you needed to be paying property taxes on it and then you needed to you know and so the breakers was only used barely 40 years before it ended up being sold 
to the Newport Historical Society, which maintains it with, with, with sort of like a proviso that the Vanderbilts could retain use of a part of the house. There was sort of a weird joint ownership, but it was a way that the person who inherited the breakers could not afford to maintain it um, using just the trusts that were left to her. And so, but when it was sold, it was sold for $200,000. Like that, that is value that just like vanishes into thin air. It's just gone. It just goes poof. Or like, you know, the money that Alba would spend on her clothes or the money that they spent on the party is like, it just goes away. It just disappears. And, um, you know, there's some Gilded Age fortunes where you can kind of point to things that were done. You know, Carnegie, there are Carnegie libraries all over the Midwest. Um, a lot of the Astor fortune, the Astor fortune is gone now, um, which we talk about in our forthcoming book. Um, but a lot of it went into a foundation. It went into, you know, if you go to New York City, the word that the Astor name is plastered all over everything. So there's some philanthropy that was attached to it. Um, other Gilded Age families, the Rockefellers still have all their money. No one actually knows how much money the Rockefellers have because they've been so good at keeping their money. It's actually kind of interesting. Um, but in the case of the Vanderbilts, as far as we could tell, it just it just got spent. It just got spent, 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 and and then it was gone. That's wild. It's wild. I thought it seems like you could almost like sum up, you know, maybe not sum up, but it seemed like the chapter about Gloria Vanderbilt um, at the end kind of encapsulated what seemed to be the mindset about money for a lot yeah. of those generations, where it was like yeah. she needed these. $10,000 curtains or whatever it was. Yeah. And it was yeah. like, she just had to have them. And then after yeah. a year, they went off to storage. Yeah. And to her, that was just normal. Yeah, Anderson talked about the fact that his mother um, grew up without any understanding of money, that she, she just always assumed it was going to be there. Because when she was young, she was an heiress. And, and one of the chapters talks about all the unwanted attention that was lavished upon her when, she, when her father passed away. Um, and we go into a couple, we look at, at Gloria from a couple of different perspectives because Gloria did a lot of writing of her own. And so one thing we were trying to do was think about, you know, she spent her whole life in the public eye because she was a Vanderbilt and then because she was beautiful and then because she was successful, she, she had her, her you know, fashion and art kind of empire. And so she was just in the public eye all the time and she had this money that she didn't, no one ever taught her what to do with it or how to use it. And so Anderson has spoken publicly in other contexts about growing up and being worried about how he was going to take care of her because she would just spend, she just, if she got money, she would spend it. She would borrow money from a friend and then she would spend it. And, um, you know, there's, there's a, if there's a common theme through the book, it's how money can warp perspectives. It can warp relationships between people. Um, and it can warp kind of your sense of reality, your sense of like what 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 matters. Um, it's a in in a really funny way. It's a really pernicious kind of influence that way, or it can be. It can be. Yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was interesting too, and like your what you're saying here about like, yeah, they don't know how to manage money at all because it was yeah. like in the eyes of New York society, to you had to be like three generations removed from the person who made the fortune. Well, according to, to Caroline it. Astor, which is, by the <laughs> way, kind of an arbitrary rule, an arbitrary rule that she and Ward McAllister <laughs> came up with conveniently because her husband was three generations removed from making the money. Yeah. <laughs> you got to be a knob that. and not a swell, Jenny. Yeah. Exactly. What I found so interesting about it, though, was that, like, for the, it seemed like for the Vanderbilts, once they got to that three generations removed from making the money, suddenly they, like, couldn't stop spending <laughs> No, no, they couldn't because they they'd assumed that it had always been there. Yeah, it, it would always be there. Do you think that um, Cornelius Vanderbilt had a point when he told his son like keep the money together? Because yeah, he did like, have a point where he told his son keep the money together. Yeah, definitely. Um, he he told uh, his son William the Blatherskite um, to keep the money together. It was one reason for um, a, a common theme was primogeniture in that family mm -hmm. where you would settle the bulk of the wealth and responsibility on like one son yeah um and and of course not on any daughters or or anything like that um but you know of course he wasn't in the end he wasn't all that successful <laughs> no oh, man 
I mean, they managed to last a little bit longer than the, the, the old adage is uh, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. That's an American adage about how wealth goes that like you start in your shirt sleeves and then three generations later, you know, you, you make the money, you spend the money and then you're back to shirt sleeves. Oh, that's um, so interesting. So they, yeah. You haven't heard that? No, no I haven't never heard that. that. The other way, the other, the other, that's a very common kind of like, I don't know, adage. Another way of phrasing it is three generations back to the plow. You haven't heard that one? No, this is probably because we studied math and not history. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's not something that, that, that you learn studying history. I feel like that's just something that's around in the ether, but maybe that's, maybe that's <laughs> just the ether I happen to live in. Um, so yeah, they managed to do a little bit longer than that, but um, not much. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I've literally never heard of that before. <laughs> Seriously? Oh, yeah. Am I dating myself? Yeah. <laughs> it's been known to happen yeah i guess that's yeah. what happens when you grow up in the philippines and like just move here maybe they don't have shirt sleeves in the philippines not for that yeah oh, oh god so now we want to hear about what it is that or just like you and writing in general oh so okay um when we uh, when we were talking about you coming on the podcast, you were like, "I'd love to, especially if I get to talk about my pirate novel." <laughs> yes, this my is your pirate chance. Novel. Tell us all I'm about so your excited. pirate novel. I'm so excited about my pirate novel. My pirate novel has the most ridiculous title of all titles, and I love ridiculous titles. It is a true account: Hannah Missouri's sojourn amongst the pirates, written by herself. Love and that. I- <laughs> So into it. it, it that title kind of derives from 18th century books. 18th century books always have these really long, marvelous titles, like being a true account of the this and the that and the this and the that. Um, and so it's so I'm the only thing I do for fun uh, when I'm not writing is that I I like to sail. And so like a lot of people, I've been obsessed with pirates. And there are several accounts of I mean several is, is strong. There are some accounts of women in the golden age of piracy, which is basically the 1700s, disguising themselves as men and being pirates. And so the action in A True Account starts in Boston in 1926, or 1926, 1726, excuse me. Um, And in 1726 in Boston, this really happened. There was a a public trial for piracy. Um, Some guys um, mutinied while they were off the coast of Cape Hatteras uh, because of, quote, poor usage or bad usage. So they mutinied. And then they, uh, they, went, they went pirating. They renamed their ship the Fame's Revenge. They went pirating. And then they like, threatened a guy, because having, having navigation skills is actually a really specific skill set in the 18th century. It's not a skill set that most sailors had. Like, even if you kind of knew how to sail a boat, you didn't necessarily know how to, how to get where you were going. And so they, um, pers- they persuaded a guy to um, take them to Martha's Vineyard, which is an island off of Massachusetts, because they needed food and water. But the guy tricked them. I don't know how he was able to trick them so thoroughly because he ended up taking them to Boston. But Martha's Vineyard is like over here. To get to Boston from Martha's Vineyard, you have to go all the way outside Cape Cod and then back around. So <laughs> I don't know what they weren't paying attention. Um, but the upshot is the the pirates were captured. They were tried in public and they were publicly hanged, which is oh, not wow. unusual in the 1700s. This is something that was common, commonly done, but less commonly done. After they were hanged, they were gibbeted, the guy who led it. Gibbeting is when you take somebody's body. I'm going to gross you guys out. I'm sorry. You take someone's body and you hang it in chains and let it rot. My word. This guy, William Fly, this really happened. William Fly, after he was hanged in Boston in 1726, his body was hung in chains on a little rock in Boston Harbor called Nix's Mate, and it was left there to rot as a warning against other people who would go pirating. So I have the action in a true account um, starts with my character, Hannah Missouri, who is um, bound to service in an inn that really existed. Um, She's in her late teens. We never actually get a sense of exactly how old she is. And she is present when William Fly is hanged. And then she gets kind of caught up in some intrigue and she has to flee for her life. And as they're as they're leaving uh, in the boat, they pass William Fly's body hanging in chains at the mouth of Boston Harbor. And, um, and then she ends up tangling with some real-life pirates, a guy named Ned Lowe, who was one of the most kind of notorious pirates of this time period. And then there's some twists and turns. And, of course, there is inevitably um, both treasure and a parrot, because you have to have treasure <laughs> and a parrot. Um, it's not but a there's real some, pirate book unless there's yeah, treasure. Yeah, there's not a parrot book unless there's treasure and a parrot. But, um, 
I have a lot of fun with it. I have a lot of fun with various pirate tropes. Um, I've been telling people that the book is like Gone Girl meets Treasure Island. And, um, and then I don't want to give too much away as far as, as far as the twists go, but it also ends up asking some questions. Um, Jenny, this is why I was laughing so hard. And you're like, I love reading fiction. I don't have to think about it. Cause like a true account actually asks a lot of questions about the nature of truth and authority and fiction. And like, can something be emotionally true while being factually false? Um, and it asks a lot of questions about authorship and identity. And so there's some slippery Slippery, sneaky literary stuff that's going on in between a lot of um, action and adventure and some swashbuckling. Nice. And I just am so excited about it. My agent has been is so tired of me having a pirate phase because I've been talking about pirates for years now. She's like, please just get it out of your system. Um, so this is this is my pirate novel. It's coming out on um, on November the 21st. And I'll be doing some in-person events around it for, um, you know, around like, the first week of December, um, I'll be in the Boston area, obviously, and then in, in which is where I'm based, and then um, have an event in Houston, and then I'm going to like a lunch thing in South Carolina. So I'll be kind of around and about um, if people want to connect with me in person. That's exciting. That yeah, so I'm really exciting. stoked. I'm really stoked. And and because that's not enough pirates um, on February sixth ne- next February, um, I'm releasing the Penguin Book of Pirates with Penguin Classics, which is a collection of primary sources. Um, Because I think like we've been talking about sources a little bit, like I think for a lot of people kind of getting started thinking about reading primary sources is a little bit daunting. Like it can be tricky to know where to start or how to begin. And so a few years ago, um, I edited a volume called The Penguin Book of Witches um, for people who are interested in witches and witchcraft because I've written a lot of fiction about Salem and so forth. Um, And so this is a similar book like that. If you're interested in pirates and you want to read some like legit original pirate stuff but you don't know where to where to start Um, I've picked some selections and I've done some contextualizing essays and then annotating so that if you don't know weird nautical jargon um, I explain all the weird nautical jargon and sometimes much of the time I'm able to identify like historical locations versus present locations not always Um, but it's all full of annotations and it's going to be a lot of fun too and both of those things are available for pre-order right now um, through bookshop.org, which is the platform that supports indie bookstores. That's awesome. I was just thinking I should go the independent bookstore here is Blacksburg Books. I was like, oh, I should go to Blacksburg Books and see if I can (laughs) pre-order. You can, you totally can. You can, you don't even have to go in in person because they probably have a bookshop.org, um, bookshop.org website. And, uh, I am, so I'm originally, this is, this is another one of my rants. I'm originally from Houston and, and right now, um, there's actually kind of a a big to do happening because in Texas, especially in the Houston independent school district, um, they're trying to really restrict what kinds of books kids are able to read. And one of the ways that they're trying to do that is to make bookstores that supply books to schools have read every single book that they supply, which is actually like not possible to do. They want to make yeah. sure that there's no content or what have you. And so uh, Blue Willow Books, which is an indie bookstore in Houston that has been, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of. And um, they're kind of taking it on the chin in trying to resist uh, book banning and book restriction policies in, in, for, for young people. And so um, that's one reason I've gotten a bit militant about urging people to support their independent bookstores because, you know, Amazon doesn't care. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. insane. Yeah, it is. Okay, it this is, is a question that's not on our guide, but I was thinking about it as you were talking, and I'm really curious. Um, so when you're writing this historical fiction and you're mixing these characters and these uh, places and people and events that actually happened and actually existed with yeah. these like more uh, I guess I don't know if absurd is the right word but like these other fun stories and made-up characters how yeah. do you decide um like what real things to incorporate and what things to just like invent on your own that's a really good question um and I think it, it varies from story to story but one thing that I try to do first of all in every novel that I've written I've had a pretty extensive author's note that talks a, a bit about that like it'll talk about what's real, what are some of the sources I used, what's not real. And in each case, I try to base a fictional character authentically in like an understanding of their time. So like, Hannah is not a real person, but there were teenage people who were bound out to service in taverns. This is something that happened. You know, I try to understand the material culture of the world she's living in, 
the class constraints of the world that she's living in, you know, what, like what her religious perspective would be, because Boston in 1726, like that is just post Puritanism. So she herself would have been raised with all this Puritan rhetoric, but would probably not have been a Puritan herself. But she's, she's also not literate. So the only exposure she's had to, to reading or to, or to literature is listening to the Bible be read to her every Sunday, um, things like that. So she has like all these kinds of weird pseudo religious turns of phrase or ways of thinking about the world without actually being religious herself, for example. Um, so when I try to constitute a character, I try to really understand the time period that they're living in and then constitute them in a way that would be, I think, authentic to the extent that I'm able to understand what their perspective might be like. Um, and so that's largely how I do it. And I find it easier to imagine into either a wholly fictional person or if I imagine into a historical person, someone that we don't know all that well. So my first novel, The Physic Book of Deliverance Dane, um, was sort of a magical realist story. And it asked, what if one of the Salem witches were the real thing, the way the colonists actually believed witches to be, not in the pointy hat Harry Potter kind of way. And there was a real deliverance Dane. She was accused during the Salem witch crisis, but we don't, don't actually know that much about her. Her, her. She was very minor. She, it, I felt I had more room to imagine a magical realist story about her than I would about, say, Rebecca Nurse or somebody who was a character in The Crucible who we saw the movie, you know, with Daniel Day-Lewis. Um, you know, I felt like there's less, there's less room to imagine into into real people. That's how my approach has been. I know some historical fiction authors um, like to imagine into people who really existed um, and are able to do that pretty well. But I like to have a fictional person who is surrounded by real events. And wherever possible, I try to base the real events in archival sources. So like when Hannah goes to see the, the execution, like everything that's said in the execution scene is what was really said. Oh, wow. I didn't make any of that stuff up. A lot of the things that she sees Ned Lowe do are things Ned Lowe actually did. Like, this is probably my most violent book. Um, I'm a big chicken. I'm, I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't write, I'm very PG-13. I don't write graphic sex scenes. I'm a complete, I'm squeamish. I'm a complete dork. Um, but this, this book is probably more adult than many of my other books um, because Ned Lowe did a lot of very violent things, but I didn't invent them. I'm just telling you what they were. That's so um, interesting. Yeah. So that's been my approach. Other historical fiction authors probably have different approaches, but one way I feel like able to do that is because I'm trying to tell stories about people who are not the kinds of people who typically leave record of themselves. And so, which is why one reason why in a true account, I'm so interested in kind of grappling with artistically but intellectually too, grappling with the question of can something be emotionally true without being factually true? You know, I want Hannah to be a true character. I want her to be an, an authoritative representation of a kind of life, um, even if she herself didn't exist. I like that. <laughs> other, you might talk to other yeah. authors who have a very different perspective. You know, we all find our own way in the ways that we do our things. Yeah, I don't know. This is interesting because Catherine and I, um, Catherine Murphy and I, recently had a conversation about like, um, if it's a res like the responsibility of an author to accurately yeah. portray like the the culture that they're writing about. Yeah, is it like um, morally? Is it like a moral obligation to be as historically accurate as possible? I feel I was, that it is. Yeah, personally, I mean, there there other people feel differently. Um, I feel that it is like I early in my career, I was asked to blurb a book that um, this is so minor, but it's what a stickler I am. Like I was asked to blurb a book where, where there's a scene of it starts in like 1660 and there's a scene of people sitting down and having tea. And I was like, I can't blurb this book because no one drinks tea in 1660. It didn't become a popular drink until the 18th century. And it was actually kind of a big deal, like economically and socially and like in terms yeah. of material culture and like the production of objects. And you can't really have, tea being a whole thing until after the consumer revolution of the beginning of the 18th century. And I mean, that sounds probably like a really nerdy, nitpicky kind of objection, but it, it made me feel like that person didn't know what they were talking about. Yeah. yeah. Do you think that's like the line between what historical fiction is and what just plain fiction? Maybe so. Of course, it's, it's always a little bit 
the question of when history begins, I think, is a is a question that historians and no, novelists who write historical fiction similarly grapple with. Um, you know, my my most contemporary book was set in. There are two timelines, but the major timeline it's it's a YA book called Conversion that came out in 2014 that is set in 2011, I think, which feels really recent to me, anyway. Probably not to you all, um, but a lot of a lot of things have changed since 2011. Like like in a way, writing something authentically in 2011, I actually had to. Um, oh no, here's a, here's an even better example. My most recent novel is called The Daughters of Temperance Hobbes. And it is a follow-up to the Physic Book of Deliverance Dane, so it has the same character in it. But it is set in, let's see, 2002, I think. So I was in grad school in 2002. So I remember the material world of 2002. I remember what jeans look like, you know. But I had to, like, I tried to still make it authentic. I had to research what model of cell phone my grad student character would carry in 2002. It was a little Nokia, like where you could get the like cheap little brightly colored cases and trade them out and stuff like that. And, and, and like, I had to try to be authentic to that character having a different relationship with technology than her, the professor character who had been my main character in the, in the first novel when she was a grad student. I have a lot of grad student fiction. <laughs> Love that. Yeah. I do. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I think that, I think that anyone who's writing about a particular moment in time, even if that moment in time is the present, needs to understand that moment in time. Yeah. And, you know, and, and not kind of take it, take it for granted. Um, not that I think fiction writers tend to take their moments in time all that much for granted, but it is interesting about like, if someone 200 years from now is trying to write about 2001, and they, but they had people acting and using the technology of 2020 or 2023. Yeah. I guess. You'd be like, like you, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, I feel like that's ridiculous. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> what are you talking about? It originated in the two, 2020s, not 2000. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's very different. We've, we've lived through a real, a real kind of technological revolution or, um, well, interestingly, you all probably have, have, have a more naturalized relationship with many modes of technology than I do. Um, I didn't get my first cell phone until after I graduated from college. It's oh, crazy. wow. <laughs> I know. I know. And I'm not that old, like old-ish, but like not, you know, not decrepit. Yeah. So when it comes to your writing process, is it different when you're writing just like a truly historical book like Vanderbilt compared to a fiction book like... Um, I forgot the name of the a true account. Book. <laughs> a true account. Hannah Missouri's Sojourn Amongst the Pirates, written by herself. I mean, I can remember is written by herself because that's I'd love that. <laughs> um, yeah, like, um, what are the differences between the process of writing those two types of books? Yeah, that's a good question, also, um, and it is different in a way that was was sort of surprising to me. So, typically, when I write fiction, um, the order of operations is I start with a, a moment in time. I try to understand that moment in time. I then try to populate that moment in time with people I think authentically belong there. And then I see what they do. So at least for me, plot comes last in a way, in conceptualizing. But when writing creative nonfiction like Vanderbilt or like Astor, colon, the rise and fall of an American fortune coming <laughs> in one month, um, you start with understanding the moment in time and then you see what happened because it's already a matter of record what, what happened. But from seeing what happened, I then try to extrapolate how the people in that moment felt, like how they were constituted in their moment and then what, what would have been motivating them or going through their minds. So in a funny way, plot comes first or moment comes first topic comes first plot comes second and then character comes third um, and that was an interesting experience to try to have yeah do you think that has to do somewhat with like the resources that are available to you depending on what you're writing so like if you're writing historical fiction what you have available is a concept of the time and if right. you're writing about a specific person or or set of people that like you have a record of their lives first and then you have to delve into what's happening probably um yeah 
Maybe that's it. But it's also true. It, it, I think that sometimes people have this conception that everyone in the past who was important and who we might want to know about kept a convenient diary that explains <laughs> everything that happened. I'm, you know, like, which is why I was joking so much about Alva, because in that one instance, she did, which is amazing. But for the most part, for the most part, that's not, that's not available. And, um, you know, even on the very, very rare occasions that someone keeps, keeps a, an account of themselves, you know, it's so rare that they would have insight into their motivations or, or things like that. Not least of which, because we live in, we all live in a, post-Freudian moment. We're all constituted in this moment that assumes that there are such things as unconscious motivations, whereas that is a 20th century idea. Um, people don't think about themselves in the same way in the 19th or the 18th century. Um, so, you know, even, even the narratives of ourselves that we are able to leave behind or tell ourselves are themselves historically contingent. That's so interesting. Honestly, this is making me want to be more faithful in writing my diaries so that the Catherine Howe future can write a book about me and like know all <laughs> my motivations. <laughs> yeah. Is it quite difficult to to like kind of construct a theme when you're like writing nonfiction? Because like you're just presented with like a bunch of information yeah. and like you have to kind of make an interesting angle or like a new perspective yeah. on like this established like thing that happened already. Yeah, it's 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 challenging. I mean, one of the one of the distinctions, my husband's a history professor, and one of the distinctions that he likes to draw is the difference between a historian and a chronicler. A chronicler is just the person who says this is what happened. Um, and a historian says this is what what happened means. And so with history, you're always trying to make an argument. There's always an argument. If there isn't an argument, it's not very good. It's not a very good history. Um, and in, it, interestingly, there's, you know, in some of the works that I was reading to prepare for working on Vanderbilt, a lot of times there was a, at least with the non-academic writing that I read, there was a tendency to just be like, look at that. This is crazy. Look at that. But look at that isn't an argument. It's, um, you know, instead what, what we need is, context and explication of why why are we looking at this what does it mean what is it important what does it signify why is why are we looking at this and not that um and so one of the things that was really great i thought about working with anderson i really appreciated that he wasn't looking for a hagiography he didn't need this book to be a celebration of all things vanderbilt which i think is actually very brave because yeah. um, you know it's it, 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 when it's your own family, no matter how detached you are, it's still it's still your own family. I think that that's a really hard position to take, and I was pretty impressed that he was, you know, willing to engage in some of the thornier historiographic questions that we look at in in Vanderbilt. And similarly, in our forthcoming book Aster, um, we don't we don't stop with look at that. You know, there's a there's an attempt to try to untangle what some of these things mean. What what did Aster come to mean? as a word, as a, as a concept over time? Um, what did it signify? Um, what does that, what can that tell us about our culture um, in writ large? And as I say, my approach tends to be more in the realm of cultural history. Um, and I started as a visual culture and material culture person with an art history background. And so I'm interested in stuff and what stuff <laughs> tells us about people. Um, and less so in, in reading business ledgers and, and things like that. But um, but that also has, there's important stories to be told there too. Yeah, it's yeah. super interesting because like in both Vanderbilt, there's like a very, pers in Vanderbilt, there's like a personal connection between like Anderson Cooper and like the Vanderbilt family. And I know like in your other book about the Salem witch trials, you were related to someone who was actually tried for I don't know, witchery. <laughs> I was, I was, I am a couple of them, actually, like three of them. Yeah, that and and that definitely sort of, yeah, people's first novels tend to be their often tend to be their most personal novel. And my first novel, Physic Book, um, which I started writing in grad school, is about a grad student who, you know, who makes this this crazy Salem discovery. And I think, yeah, I think there's some sense of trying to, I mean, Nathaniel Hawthorne did the same thing, um, trying to kind of reconcile with what is this? What is this very weighty fe feeling past 
mean? What does it have to tell me about myself or about my present? Um, and Anderson has spoken in other contexts about wanting to do Vanderbilt, I think because he was planning on his family. He now has two very young sons. In fact, Vanderbilt was kind of complicated because um, the same week I found out I had gotten the job was the week I found out I was going to have a baby. And so, um, and then shortly after I had, I, so I had my son and then, and that took some time. And then Anderson had his first son and that took some time and then COVID happened. Um, so I still kind of can't believe that that book even exists. Um, that being said, like, I, I do think there was a sense for him of, of uh, wanting to reckon with this, this thing you know, this historic thing, however we, want, however we want to understand it. And certainly in some of my fiction, that's the case. Um, there's, a, there's a secret history of piracy in my past too, which I talk about in the author's really? book for a, a true wow. account. Yes, Ooh. a little bit, a little bit of secret pirate history, <laughs> very glancing and tangential, but it's kind of fun. And so I talk about it in a true account as well. Pirate history is pirate history. So that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So do you have any like weird rituals that you do when you're writing or getting ready to write? You know, what's so funny about that is I feel like I'm asked that question a lot. And I think it has to do with the fantasy people have of what a writer is or what a writer <laughs> does, because I get up in the morning, I make coffee and then I sit down at my desk like that. You know, I, I just like go to work. Um, and I feel like sometimes there's there's a, a kind of like romanticism attached to it. Like I roam the moors. I wait for inspiration to strike. And, and um, one of the best quotes I ever came across was years ago in a New Yorker article about um, Nora Roberts, who was like the most, one of the most successful novelists in the history of time. She's like, you know, written a bazillion novels. She's made a gazillion dollars. And her writing motto is ass in the chair. <laughs> and so years ago when we were living in uh, upstate New York for my husband's job, I went to the Corning Glass Museum where you can do little like crafty glass projects. And I sandblasted a bowl with the phrase ass in the chair, Nora fucking Roberts, which is what her friends call her. And I have I put that on my desk for a long time because it's actually the best writing advice of, of all time. Just like sit your ass down and just do your work, you know. Oh, I don't have, I I don't have any do with that advice. <laughs> I know. I'm like, that's yeah. maybe what I need to do to get this PhD done. <laughs> I know. I know. It's it's terrible because everyone's like, what's the, what's the secret? And I'm like, well, you sit down and first you write one word and then the next one and then one after that. And then if you keep going for a hundred thousand times, one day it's finished. And people are like, what? <laughs> I want the secret. I'm like, if you figure it out, man, you tell me. I mean, now there's chat GPT. So maybe the secret is to just prompt it, write a Catherine Howe novel and maybe it'll do it for me. It's a depressing thought. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh man. That's so good. All right. We have to ask, what are you going to be writing next? Well, so I'm chewing over a novel idea that's going to kind of like, kind of a uh, forswear your pitch i'm afraid because i'm actually thinking about a mathy kind of novel i'm completely not qualified to write at all but so um so there's in new york city there is a park called gramercy park it's the last private park in the city and it is beautiful and it is gated and it is it's closed off and there's a pattern of streets that goes around gramercy park and if you look at the pattern of streets around Gramercy Park, it is exactly the same pattern as a nine men's Morris table. A nine men's Morris is an, a very ancient table game. There's different versions of it called three men's Morris, six men's Morris. It's kind of related to Go um, or to like Mancala or, or games of that ilk. It was very popular in the colonial period. And it is a solved game. So it is possible to play a perfect game of nine men's morris just as it is i guess possible to play a perfect game of tic-tac-toe um, and so i was imagining wouldn't it be fun to have some kind of pattern of murders around gramercy park where someone who is a little bit mathy but not a conventional person figures out that it is what is happening is a perfect game of nine men's morris and so I'm thinking about so kind much. of a kind of a like weird puzzle, mathy New York City, early 19th century Gramercy Park novel. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking about. 
That is so good because me and Jenny always get on this podcast and complain about the lack of math fiction. <laughs> Why isn't there more math fiction? I Why agree. Why isn't there more it's, math fiction? It's as much of a money 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 generating idea as my probably my least read novel of all, which is called The Appearance of Annie Van Sinderen, which my husband likes to call the great American abolitionist anarchist ghost story the world has been waiting for. <laughs> Which was read by like eleven people, I think, and yet is regularly memed. It's it's my like most memed book of all books. So. Oh my god! So yes, I'm not sure if my Nineman's Morris novel is going to be like the great earth shattering uh, story that everyone's looking for, but it's something I'm enjoying thinking about and um, yeah. might be working on next. I also love a good like murder mystery that's not too sure. like not too much, but is like just good enough, you know, or like yeah, just exciting, yeah. but not too like. Oh no, I haven't I done a lot of. Uh, I haven't done a lot of murder. I haven't done a lot of murder. I haven't done a lot of mystery. I think a true account, which is the pirate novel, probably has the most like unexpected twists of books that I've done. So I don't know if it would be a conventional mystery per se. I don't know. We'll have to see. But um, of course, I'm completely unqualified to talk about solved games or like the, the philosophy of mathematics that underpin like spatial reasoning and solved games. And I'm going to have to do some research. Maybe y'all can make me a reading list. That's <laughs> be good for someone who stopped at pre-cal, though. <laughs> so, what yeah. are your math novels that you wanted to pitch me? Okay, so yeah, this is going to be our like final bit episode um well we were thinking of like some historical characters in math okay folks so um my computer did something weird i don't know but basically this is where (laughs) but the conference like i just got cut out of the call for a bit um so yeah we just sort of had to deal yeah um it was what do I even say? Sorry, we're like recording this like three days later and we're both like dead tired. <laughs> anyway, suffice it to say, this bit just ends here. Um, Galwa was kind of a crazy story. Maybe we can talk about it more in the future. But uh, yeah, Catherine Howe had to go. So we just recorded a quick ending, which you're about to hear. And then that was it. Sorry. Teehee. Okay, cool. Bye. <laughs> Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. I really enjoyed visiting with you all. And yes. um, just as a reminder, anyone who wants to keep up with me who's listening, I'm on Instagram, as you know, as Catherine B. Howe. I'm on Twitter, still kind of, at Catherine B. Howe. I'm on Facebook as Catherine Howe. My website is CatherineHowe.com. And the new books that I have coming out are Aster, colon, The Rise and Fall of an American Fortune, uh, with Anderson Cooper coming out on September the 18th. And a true account, Hannah Missouri's Sojourn Amongst the Pirates, written by herself, coming on November the 21st, and The Penguin Book of Pirates, coming on February 6th. And all of those are right now available for pre-order from your favorite local independent bookstore or your local library can order it for you as well. Um, and there's certain other online outlets where you can obtain it if you must. Very nice. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. I had fun. Good luck with your various endeavors, be they <laughs> doctoral or non. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, this has been Idiots Alphabet Soup. Babouche. Babouche. <laughs>